Welcome to the Migraine Miracle Moment. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Turknet. I'm a neurologist, migraine specialist, migraine sufferer, and author of the book, The Migraine Miracle. In this podcast, you'll learn all about how to find your path to migraine freedom without pills. Let's get started. Howdy, Beach Slayers. This episode of the podcast is going to be a little bit different. I have recently begun a series of videos for the Healthy Brain Solutions channel on YouTube, and the series is entitled the Migraine 101 Masterclass. And the purpose of that masterclass is to provide people with a foundational understanding of migraines. And this episode is the audio from the first video in that series. Now, if you'd like to watch the video itself, which includes the visuals that you'll hear me reference, I'll provide a link to it in the show notes. Lastly, there is also a quiz that's associated with this video where you can test your migraine knowledge. And I have also linked to that in the show notes, but you can find it at mymigrainemiracle.com forward slash masterclass. And I will also provide a link to subscribe to the YouTube channel if you want to catch the future installments in this series when they're released. All right, and now on to the episode. The Healthy Brain Solutions channel presents the Migraine 101 Masterclass Series. Episode 1, What Are Migraines? Welcome to the Migraine 101 Masterclass Series. In this series of videos, I'm going to equip you with the basic foundational knowledge about migraines and bring you up to speed on the latest in our understanding of them. So whether you experience migraines yourself or you are a healthcare provider who takes care of migraine patients and is looking to better understand what's behind these bizarre and often debilitating episodes, or you're just curious about one of the most common neurological phenomenon, one that provides an insightful window into the workings of the human brain, then I think you're going to find this series to be interesting and informative. And in this first episode, we're going to be answering the question, what are migraines? And I should say, before we dig into that, that we've learned a lot over the years about what migraines are, but we also still have a whole lot to learn. And this is true uh, for anyone who studies biology and medicine, is that you are simultaneously struck by how much we've learned and how much we know, and also by how much we still don't know, and that is certainly the case here. First of all, let me briefly introduce myself and this Migraine 101 Masterclass series. So my name is Josh Turknet. I am a neurologist and migraine expert. I've worked with over 10,000 migraine patients over the course of my career, but my interest in migraines is not just professional, it is personal as well, as I began having migraines around the age of 10. I'm also president of Physicians for Ancestral Health. I host the Migraine Miracle Moment podcast, a show that's specifically for people with migraines, and I've written two books on the subject, and they are The Migraine Miracle and Keto for Migraine, and you can find links to both of those in the video description. I've been able to end my own battle with migraines, and my mission now is to help all of my fellow migraineurs do likewise. So that's a little bit about me, and I'll introduce this Migraine 101 Masterclass series. So some of the topics and questions that I will be answering and addressing in this series are what are migraines, what causes migraines, what happens in the brain during a migraine, how do you know if a headache is a migraine, how are migraines diagnosed, 
what are the best medications for migraine, and what other treatments are available that help migraines. Also, if you want to test your knowledge of migraines after watching this video, and I'd encourage you to do so, you can go to mymigrainemiracle.com forward slash masterclass, and you'll find quizzes dedicated to each of the videos in this series. So this particular video will be focused on defining what exactly migraines are, which is actually no easy feat, and that will become clear to you as this video unfolds. Migraines are a complex, puzzling, uh, mysterious, and often misunderstood phenomenon, which has led to quite a bit of confusion, not just amongst the general public, but also in the medical community uh, amongst many of my colleagues. So if you watch this series, you're going to have a much deeper understanding of migraines than your average healthcare provider and your average doctor. And so in this particular video, we're going to be talking about the four phases of a migraine attack. We'll look at what's happening inside the brain during each of these phases. And in doing so, you're going to understand why migraines are such a uniquely painful uh, condition. As many of my fellow uh, migraine sufferers know, there's really no pain that you experience in the course of ordinary life that compares to migraines. And while I myself don't have direct experience with it, women commonly say that they'd much prefer the pain of childbirth to the pain of a migraine. And I think after watching this video, you'll understand why there's really nothing else like it. As mentioned, migraines are a challenging thing to define, but the broadest definition of migraine we can give would be that it is a complex sequence of physiological events that unfold inside the brain after being triggered. So they're a reaction of sorts. And in this way, they're similar to things like a fever or a cough or a sneeze. These are all, of course, highly stereotyped physiological events that occur in response to a particular trigger. In the case of the fever, that trigger is an infection. In the case of a sneeze or cough, it's an irritant inside the nasal passages or the airway. And like those uh, reactions, it is a part of all human biology. And most migraine experts, myself included, believe that migraines can occur in any brain. So just like fevers, coughs, sneezes, they are responses that are woven into our biology. And the next logical question might be, well, why do only some people seem to suffer from them? And that's a question we'll answer later on. Now, that being said, there is one very important difference between migraines and other physiological reactions like fevers, coughs, and sneezes. And that is that migraines serve no purpose. Migraines don't solve any particular problem for us. They don't help maintain our health and survival in any clear way. In fact, if anything, they worsen it, at least in the short term. This becomes even more remarkable when we consider how extraordinarily common migraines are. Uh, about one in four households has someone who experiences them. So how, how on earth could a physiological response that is so debilitating and that serves no purpose impact so many people? When framed in this way, we see that it's an enormous glitch in our biology. And you would think that evolutionary forces would have wiped it out long ago. And I'll come to some possible answers to that particular mystery in a later video. Before we go any further, one other term that I should go ahead and define, because I'll be using it throughout this video, is the term migraineur. A migraineur is simply someone who experiences recurrent migraines. And as I said, I am a migraineur myself, though I have been able to conquer my own, and I hope to help you do the same if you are a fellow migraineur. 
So there are two possible ways we can go about creating a more specific definition of migraine. One is by describing the symptoms that occur, and the other is by describing what's happening in the brain. One of the most notable things about migraines are that they unfold in a stereotypical fashion, and they are an evolving phenomenon, meaning that they change over time. And these days, migraines are commonly divided into four separate phases, known as the prodrome, the aura, the pain phase, and the postdrome. And while migraine really is just one continuous process, it does help to subdivide it into these discrete stages. And one thing that's true is that these stages always occur in the same order. Just as children always learn to sit up before they learn to walk, the phases of migraine always occur in a particular sequence. And it's worth noting that scientists and doctors who studied migraines in the past didn't always recognize the fact that the migraine process was so complex. And so initially didn't realize that, symptom, that the symptoms of these different phases were all part of the same migraine process and for a while were viewed as different things. It's also important to note here that these are the four phases of a migraine in its fully expressed form. Not every person with migraine will experience all four phases. Some may experience them in one migraine and not the other. Some may experience one phase especially prominently as part of their migraine attacks and different phases in another. And as you'll see, this variety is going to be a recurring theme when it comes to migraine. So here's a graphic of the four phases and the typical durations of each one. Uh, note that this graphic is not to scale. So the prodrome and its accompanying symptoms tends to last anywhere from a few hours to a couple of days. The aura phase usually lasts under an hour with an average of 20 to 45 minutes. And then the pain phase typically lasts anywhere between four and 72 hours, though it may last longer in certain circumstances. And the postdrome is typically from anywhere from 24 to 48 hours. Again, these time frames can vary, but these represent the most typical ranges. The Miracle Moment Podcast is brought to you by Migraine Everland, our premier resource for people with migraines, which you can now try for free for 30 days. As a member, you'll have access to all of the member materials that we have created since we first launched Migraine Everland back in 2014. So that includes the B-Slayer Training Academy, which is our foundational training for how to put the Migraine Miracle program into action. It includes primal provisions with almost a year's worth of weekly meal plans and recipes. It includes the weekly clinic chat, which is a uh, Q&A session with me that takes place each week inside of our member Facebook group. It includes access to the entire archives of the chatter, which are the transcripts of all of those Q&A sessions, so almost 150 issues of those at the time of this recording. It includes access to the Migrant Evercast, which is a podcast that is exclusively for Migrant Everland members. It includes access to all of our 30-day challenges like the Keto Blast, the Jumpstart, uh, Sleep Challenge, the Movement Challenge, Mindset Challenge, and more. It includes access to the aforementioned members-only Facebook group. And it also includes the newly created Roadmap to Migrant Everland, which guides you step-by-step -step on how to utilize all of these resources to progress through all five stages in the journey to Migrant Everland. So once again, you can now become a member and try it for 30 days for free. 
To learn more and to get started, uh, head over to mymigrainemiracle.com forward slash join. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside. So in the prodromal phase, all manner of symptoms may occur. That includes fatigue, which is very common, other things like thirst or repetitive yawning or increased urination, hunger or anorexia, so not wanting to eat and so on. And so you might imagine people oftentimes don't recognize that they're in a prodromal phase when they are. And many times when they do rec recognize a prodrome, it's often in retrospect. But many experience these prodromes as part of their migraines for years without actually ever realizing that they're part of the migraine process. And typically one symptom will tend to predominate during a prodrome. So it would be unusual for someone to experience all of these. And again, as with all of the other features of migraines, someone may or may not experience a prodrome as part of an individual migraine. They may experience it with some and not others, and they may experience different types of prodromal symptoms from one migraine or one prodrome to the next. Now, some of you may have noticed something peculiar about these symptoms, which is that many of them are mutually exclusive, like depression and euphoria, or constipation and diarrhea, or hunger and anorexia. Now, naturally, you might wonder how on earth is that possible? How could the exact same phenomenon, in this case migraine, lead to pre precisely opposite symptoms in different people? And later on in this video, we are going to resolve that seeming paradox uh, when we talk about what's happening in the brain during a migraine. So after the prodrome is the aura phase, and that's typically the most frightening of all because it's associated with a temporary deficit or disturbance in brain function. And this can include things like sudden loss of vision in part of the visual field, numbness on one part of the body, weakness in one part of the body, difficulty speaking or understanding, and so on. And we'll talk more about the various aura phenomenon when we get to what's happening in the brain. Not surprisingly, people who are experiencing an aura oftentimes are very frightened by it. And it's common to think that they're having a stroke. And in fact, many people end up going to the hospital the first time they have a migraine aura and many people end up getting misdiagnosed as having had a TIA or a mini stroke, especially when the aura symptoms are not visual in nature, as many doctors aren't aware of all the various ways in which migraine auras can present themselves. Again, as with all the other features of migraine, someone may or may not experience an aura as part of their migraine. They may, may experience it with some migraines and not others, and they may experience different kinds of auras from one aura to the next. Now we get to the phase of migraine that naturally gets the most attention. When most people hear the word migraine, they think of a severe throbbing headache. And the word migraine actually derives from the Latin word hemicrania, which refers to pain in half of the head. And that refers to the fact that migraine is oftentimes one-sided, or the pain of migraine is. But as any person who experiences them knows, not always. Furthermore, the pain is not always throbbing in character, but can almost be of any character of pain imaginable. So stabbing, burning, clawing, boring, aching, and so on. And the pain of the migraine is severe by definition, and it's often accompanied by other symptoms that can be as or even more debilitating than the pain itself. So that includes things like nausea and vomiting and dizziness, sensitivity to lights and sounds. And once again, however, these are just the most common uh, symptoms 
virtually every possible symptom imaginable has been reported as part of a migraine attack. So most of the time, the pain phase lasts from 4 to 24 hours in a given person, but it isn't uncommon for it to last longer than that. And there is a condition known as status migranosis, in which it per persists continuously. However, that condition almost always is the result of the effects of the migraine medications themselves rather than a natural feature of migraines. And then the postdrome is essentially the recovery phase. So after the pain phase has ended, people don't typically return to feeling normal. So the most common symptom that people will experience during the postdrome after the pain has ended is just an overwhelming feeling of fatigue. But they can also experience other things, including things like euphoria, so a profound sense of well-being. Um, or depressed mood, or difficulty focusing, or sensitivity to touch. So the key points here on the four phases, again, not all phases are experienced by all migraineurs. The symptoms in each phase may differ from one migraine to the next. What phases are experienced may vary from one migraine to the next. And someone who's experienced one of the phases may not be aware that what they're experiencing is part of a migraine. All right, so now let's talk about what we know of what's happening inside the brain during a migraine, and we'll begin with the prodrome. As you know, the prodrome represents the very first symptoms of migraine, and that would indicate that whatever part of the brain that's responsible for the prodrome is also responsible for flipping the migraine switch to begin with or kicking the whole process off. And for centuries, we really had no idea where migraines started in the brain. In fact, it's only been fairly recently in human history that we became certain that migraines arose in the brain. In the past, people have speculated that it originated in places like the stomach or the intestines or even the uterus. These days, not only do we know it begins in the brain, but we have a pretty good idea of where in the brain migraines begin or what we might call the migraine generator. And there are many lines of evidence, a lot of which I cover in the book, The Migraine Miracle, that indicate that the central migraine generator is located in a brain structure known as the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is a small but extremely important structure that sits deep in the brain, right in the middle, underneath a structure known as the thalamus. And the word hypo means beneath, so, that, so that's where we get hypothalamus. And then just above the hypothalamus is the pituitary gland. And as some of you may know, the pituitary is involved in regulating hormones. And the hypothalamus regulates the activity of the pituitary. And you can appreciate how centrally located the hypothalamus is with this rotating skull image. And that location is not coincidental, but a reflection of how critical or integral the hypothalamus is to life. And that is because the role of the hypothalamus is to maintain homeostasis. So since the hypothalamus is such a critical piece in understanding migraines, including understanding how to protect ourselves from them in the first place, I'm going to go into a little more detail into what the hypothalamus does. So every living thing, including us, is really just a collection of zillions of chemical reactions, all of which must unfold properly in order to support life but those reactions will only unfold properly in very precise conditions inside the body. So things like body temperature, pH balance, electrolyte concentrations, all of these things must be maintained in a very narrow range. And we've evolved all sorts of physiological me mechanisms that help us to maintain all of these things within the, those narrow ranges. So while the world outside us is constantly changing, the world inside of us must remain extremely stable in order for us to stay alive. 
And the thing that coordinates all of those mechanisms for maintaining internal stability, that ensures that everything is operated in, operating in tandem, and ensures that internal conditions are stable is the hypothalamus. So despite how small it is, it has a hand in really everything that matters to us as humans. So it regulates, again, temperature, heart rate, blood pressure, electrolyte concentrations, breathing, growth rate, circadian rhythms, sleep, digestion, energy balance, learning, memory. And so just to provide an example of how it does this, so as mentioned, one of the, its roles is to control body temperature um, or thermoregulation. And again, we all know that the average body temperature is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And even deviating from that just a few degrees can be catastrophic. So let's take the case of what happens when our body temperature starts to rise. Say we're outside on a hot and humid day. So the hypothalamus has three systems that it can exert control over. And each of those can influence various homeostatic domains in different ways and on different timescales. So the most rapid homeostatic corrections generally occur through the autonomic nervous system. So those happen fast. And that's your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight and your rest and digest systems. So when body temperature rises, the hypothalamus sends autonomic nerve signals to the sweat glands so that they release sweat and the evaporation of water into the air is what cools the skin. It also sends uh, nerve signals to the blood vessels in the limbs and causes them to dilate, which diverts blood away from the core of the body to our extremities so that some of the heat in the blood can then be lost to the atmosphere. The second way the hypothalamus can influence homeostasis is by changing our behavior, and it does this by generating feelings. So in this case, the feeling of hotness is generated by our hypothalamus. So when we, when we get too hot, we feel unpleasant sensations that prompt us to do something to relieve that sensation or that particular feel, feeling. In this case, uh, prompting us to find a cooler location. And it'll also make us feel a little bit lethargic so that we start expending less energy uh, to generate less body heat. And then lastly, our hypothalamus controls hormones or the endocrine system. And this is the one that typically operates on the slowest time scales. So in this case, sustained elevations in our body temperature would lead to the reduction in the secretion of thyroid hormone, which controls our metabolic rate. And uh, since metabolism generates heat, reducing our metabolic rate will help to cool us down. And so now with this in mind, these seemingly paradoxical early symptoms of migraine make a little bit more sense. What we're actually seeing in those cases is a hypothalamus that's malfunctioning. It's generating these feelings that are usually triggered by some change in our environment in order to prompt us to help maintain homeostasis. But in this case, it's just being generated by the migraine itself. So it's activating all of these homeostatic mechanisms when it shouldn't be. Things like making you thirsty when you don't need to drink or making you pee when you don't need to pee or making you tired when you've had a good night's sleep and so on. So you can just think of the early phases of migraine, the, po the prodrome, as being signs of a dysfunctional hypothalamus dysfunctional because it's being turned on, in this case, not because of some kind of homeostatic change in the environment, but by the migraine process itself. Okay, now on to the second phase, which is arguably the most fascinating part of migraine, and that is the aura phase. And this is a huge topic, which you can write an entire textbook about, but here we're going to just focus on the highlights. So to remind you, an aura is a temporary disturbance or deficit in brain function, usually lasting about 20 to 45 minutes. 
And what's happening in the brain, we now know, is this phenomenon known as cortical spreading depression, or CSD. With CSD, you can think of a wave that moves throughout the brain, starting in one spot, in one, in one location, and then spreading from that origin, kind of like a pebble that's dropped in a body of water. And specifically what's happening is there is a wave of what's known as depolarization, or the firing of neurons, that spreads from the point of origin uh, outward at a very specific rate. And then it's followed by a period of suppressed neural activity in the same area. And if you look at this inside a functional imaging scanner where you can look at blood flow in the brain over time, you will see an increase in blood flow in this area followed by a decrease. And here's a nifty animation from Wikipedia that shows the progression of a classic wave of spreading depression in the brain, including the speed at which it usually propagates. So again, here it looks as if the brain is a body of water and we dropped a pebble in the occipital lobe. Now there is a lot of evidence, as I said, that indicates that this wave of spreading depression is responsible for the aura of a migraine. And as you probably know, different parts of our brain mediate different functions. So the particular neurological symptoms that somebody experiences during an aura are going to depend on where this wave of activity is occurring. The most common place is in the occipital lobe, which is at the back of the head and the occipital lobe receives signals from the eyes and is responsible for constructing the visual image of the world that we see. So this would explain why the most common auras are visual in nature. And they can be all manner of disturbances, but there are a few kinds of visual disturbances that are very typical of migraine. Perhaps the most common is the occurrence of, uh, of a blind spot or an area of visual loss in the beginning. And this area usually starts out small and then expands over time. Incidentally, it expands exactly at the rate you'd predict based on this wave of spreading depression. That was one of the early indications that that's what was the, the cause of the aura. So typically, in addition to this blind spot, there's also a shimmering or flickering around the edges of it that forms kind of a crescent shape. And as the blind spot enlarges, so does that flickering crescent. Some of the other commonly described visual auras are sparkles of light or zigzag lines or distorted colors and kaleidoscopic vision. Um, some people will describe tunnel vision. So here at the top uh, is a drawing of an aura by neurologist uh, Friedrich Jolly in 1902. And again, you can see this is the, what I was talking about. This is the um, expanding crescent, crescent shape, which is this blind spot with this jagged scintillating edge. And I myself have actually experienced this particular kind of aura, and it really looks just like this. I was actually uh, in my neurology residency, and I was rounding on my patients, and I started notice that the, noticing that the numbers were missing from the hospital rooms. And then I realized that I had a blind spot. And then I started seeing this flickering around it. And fortunately, I knew about migraine auras, or else I would have been totally freaked out. Instead, I got really excited. Up until this point, I'd never had an aura, only the uh, pain of a migraine. So I sat down at a nurse's station and I watched the whole thing unfold from start to finish. And again, it was exactly as people have been describing for centuries. On the bottom right here, uh, you'll see a drawing from Lewis Carroll, uh, author of Alice in Wonderland, who also experienced migraines. And you'll see that the uh, right half of the face that he's drawn is missing. And uh, that's due to an aura. So uh, Carroll, Lewis Carroll apparently had all sorts of visual distortions during his auras. And these were reportedly the inspiration for some of the perceptual distortions that are written into his stories, including Alice in Wonderland.
That being said, visual disturbances are far from the only kind of aura that people can experience. Again, virtually every conceivable neurological deficit has been described as part of an aura phenomenon. Um, next to visual disturbances, disturbances in sensation are the next most common. And this makes sense anatomically as sensory input from the skin is received in the back of the parietal lobe. And, and that's responsible for constructing our experience of tactile sensations. And that area is adjacent to the occipital lobe where the visual disturbances occur. The most common sensory disturbance is a tingling that tends to begin in the fingertips and then marches up the arm. Um, oftentimes this occurs in tandem or at the same time as the visual aura. So as we can see in this picture, here is someone who is experiencing an expanding scintillating scotoma uh, and at the same time is also experiencing an expanding area of tingling and numbness in the arm. And again, both of these are occurring on the same side of the body. Now, if the wave of spreading depression involves the frontal lobe, then we may see different kinds of disturbances. In this, in this case, motor disturbances of, very, of various kinds or disturbances of movement. One example would be weakness on one side of the body, uh, which neurologists refer to as hemiparesis or hemiplegia, depending on the severity. There is, in fact, one form of migraine known as hemiplegic migraine, a fairly rare variant which shows a very strong familial inheritance, unlike uh, other forms of migraine, and consistently causes paralysis on one side of the body during the attacks. Another type of frontal disturbance that occurs is difficulty speaking or aphasia, in which a person can't transform ideas in their minds into the motor patterns of the vocal cords. So again, it's a movement problem, but in this case, uh, translating ideas or concepts into movement of the vocal cords that produces speech. And people with this kind of language problem often describe knowing what they want to say, but being unable to say it. Now, if the wave of depression impacts the temporal lobe, then someone may experience other symptoms. These can include things like understanding language. So here the problem is not in producing sounds, but rather attaching the sounds of language to their meanings. The temporal lobe is also critically involved in memory. And so different types of memory disturbances can occur as part of a migraine, including deja vu, in which you believe that you've experienced something before, or you're basically have the idea that you already have the memory of a new experience, so a false memory. The temporal lobe is also responsible for decoding taste and smell sensations. So smelling or tasting things that aren't actually there are also potential migraine aura symptoms. And then lastly, the aura phenomenon can also impact an area called the brainstem. So that's the structure that links the brain to the spinal cord. And aura phenomenon that originate from brainstem dysfunction can include things like problems with coordination, vertigo, dizziness, even double vision due to problems moving one of the eyes, dilation of a pupil, and even quadriplegia or inability to move all of the limbs. And that's something I've seen personally. So as I said, while certain aura symptoms are most common, uh, within the range of possibilities exists nearly every imaginable deficit in neurological function. And in fact, in my experience in working with thousands of migraine patients over the years, I have encountered patients with pretty much this entire range uh, of auras in my own practice. All right, so now comes the phase that generates a lot of the attention or that perhaps the typical person equates with the word migraine, and that is the pain phase. Sometimes it's also referred to as the headache phase, 
but I prefer to use the term pains because it's uh, not always limited to the head. And what we see in the brain during a migraine is activation of pain sensing structures in the brain. Just like we talked about the hypothalamus being activated at the wrong time, here the pain part, pain sensing structures of the brain are also being uh, activated at the wrong time. And much of this occurs in a part of the brain called the brainstem, which again is the part of the brain that links the brain to the spinal cord. And the central player in, in, this, in all of this is the trigeminovascular system. And that just refers to this network of connections between nerves and blood vessels that are responsible for transmitting sensory signals from the head uh, and blood vessels that supply blood to the cranium. So in, in the brainstem are these clusters of nerve cells that receive input from the nerves that supply the skull including the coverings of the brain, known as the meninges, as well as from the blood vessels. And what appears to be happening in a migraine is that the migraine process itself is activating those clusters of nerve cells in the brainstem. So when the brain is operating normally, these clusters of nerve cells in the brainstem that are receiving signals from the cranium, the meninges and the blood vessels, um, are there to detect when there is some kind of threat to the head or to the skull. And that could be from trauma due to a blow to the head or destruction of tissue due to an infection. And because the reason we experience pain to begin with is it's a warning system. It's a way of our body to signal that something is wrong so we can direct our attention to it. But here in the case of migraine, that's not what's happening. In migraine, the pain sensing structures of the brain are being turned on by the migraine process itself rather than by any direct insult or injury. So in the book, The Migraine Miracle, I liken this to pulling a fire alarm when there's no fire. So these pain sensing structures in the brainstem exist to warn us of threats to our head. Yet in this case, the alarm system is turning on, but there's no threat. And then to add insult to injury, the activation of those structures causes the release of substances at the nerve endings. And then the nerve endings detect those substances and send a signal back to the pain sensing structures in the brainstem. So here we have all the makings of a feed-forward self-amplifying loop, which of course to many people with migraines will make perfect sense. We know that the typical course of a migraine is that it builds in intensity over time until it reaches this excruciating crescendo. And this self-amplifying feedback loop appears to be one big reason why that is. Okay, so let's recap where we are now. So as mentioned, Migraines appear to begin with dysfunction of the hypothalamus. So this structure that lies deep in the middle of the brain and is responsible for coordinating homeostasis throughout the body. And this dysfunction of the hypothalamus is responsible for the symptoms of the prodromal phase of migraine, which can last anywhere from 24 to 48 hours. Following the prodrome is the aura phase, which is characterized by a wave of spreading depression in the brain where we see initially an increase in neural activity and blood flow, and then a decrease in activity and blood flow. And as mentioned, where this wave occurs is likely what determines the kind of symptoms that somebody experiences during an aura, with various disturbances in vision, especially scintillating scotoma being the most common. And again, the aura phase typically lasts anywhere between 20 to 45 minutes. And then we have the pain phase, in which there is activation of parts of the brainstem, specifically the trigeminovascular system, 
which is responsible for sensing pain in the cranium, specifically in the meninges and the blood vessels. And this leads to release of pain signaling molecules at the nerve terminals, resulting in inflammation in those tissues, and that inflammation then activates those same nerve endings, which relay the pain signal back to the brainstem, and you end up with this uh, feed-forward loop. And lastly, we have the postrome, which is the period in which the brain is really recovering from all this stuff that has just happened and trying to restore itself back to equilibrium. So just like the body after a really heavy exertion like running a marathon, the brain after a migraine is in this depleted state and so must restore itself back to normal. So it should be abundantly clear from this discussion that the number of possible variations for any given migraine attack are essentially limitless. And as discussed, it is extraordinarily common for migraines to vary. Not only may different symptoms be experienced in each phase, but not every phase may be experienced in each migraine. What I've described with the four phases is the full range of a migraine attack from start to finish. But any and all combinations and permutations are possible. And then compounding the confusion here is the fact that we've decided to give names to, to some of these variations. So sometimes this was done in order for us to refer to some of the more common disguises of migraine, primarily so that doctors could remember to recognize those disguises and not end up misdiagnosing it. Some of the names refer to the kind of aura that someone experiences, so an ocular migraine being one that's characterized by a visual aura without a headache, a vestibular migraine being one in which dizziness and vertigo predominate, then you have people referring to migraines according to the things that commonly trigger them. So some people will talk about weather migraines uh, to, to refer to ones that are provoked by changes in the weather. Some, may, some names may refer to the pattern, such as menstrual migraines, for those that tend to occur during menstruation. Or some people may instead refer to those same migraines as hormonal, again, uh, a, re a reference to their presumptive trigger. And then some are referred to instead by the place in the brain where the aura occurs. So an occipital migraine would be one that produces a visual aura, which of course would be no different than the aforementioned ocular migraine. Or a basilar migraine refers to auras that involve the part of the brain supplied by the basilar artery. And again, the problem is that there's no consistency here in this approach. And what's happened is that all of this has led to the perception that these are describing different phenomena. But of course, these are all migraines. Again, no two migraines are the same. So you could conceivably give a different name to every single different migraine attack ever experienced in the course of history. And the main issue here is this has led people to think that these are different in kind and that each one would mandate a different approach. It's analogous to thinking that every person you know is a different species of animal rather than all being part of the human species. So the point here to remember is that it's all migraine, meaning it's all part of the same underlying process. And then if that wasn't confusing enough, you also have had the rapid spread of misinformation that is the internet, where people have continued to add even more names into this mix. So clearly we have a situation that is ripe for confusion. Number one, we have a condition that can have endless ways in which it can manifest itself. And then you have all sorts of different naming systems or ways of referencing migraine that are not systematic and that aren't consistently applied. So it's no surprise that there are so many misconceptions and misunderstandings about migraines, ones that I'm trying to clarify each and every day, um, even amongst 
healthcare providers. And the problem is that many, in many cases, those misconceptions stand in the way of people getting the right kind of help for their migraines. Once again, I've seen thousands of people with migraines and no two are the same. So again, if we just review the possible symptoms in each of these phases and that you can experience any one of these and they can be com combined in, in any number of ways, we see that the, the, the number of combinations are essentially endless. Speaking of misdiagnoses, one fi final term that I'll mention is that of a migraine equivalent. So a migraine equivalent basically describes symptoms that are secondary to migraine but don't involve pain. So most commonly, this is an aura phenomenon like the visual or sensory auras described, but it can be any others as well, like temporary problems speaking or understanding or attacks of dizziness and vertigo and so on. Furthermore, sometimes people may experience prodromal symptoms of migraine without an ensuing attack, uh, but not recognize that that's what's occurring. Again, migraine equivalent is really an inaccurate term because all it is is just a migraine that doesn't include the pain phase. These are really just migraines. But I mention it because you might imagine these are the most common disguises of migraines that are misdiagnosed. In fact, in my experience, it's more common for a patient to receive the incorrect diagnosis for one of these episodes of migraine equivalence than the correct one. And usually a patient will have been told that they've had, they've had or are having TIAs or mini strokes. And if these episodes are ever correctly diagnosed, it's because they kept on recurring and somebody decided to ultimately question the diagnosis. All right, let's just review the major points that we covered in this particular video. One is that migraines are a physiological reaction that can occur in any brain. They're typically divided into four different phases and there is endless variability from one person to the next and from one migraine to the next. So those are the details about what migraines are. But now you may be asking the question, why? Why do these things happen? Earlier, I mentioned that migraines are a physiological reaction that can unfold in any brain. But unlike other physiological reactions that unfold in any brain, like a sneeze or a cough, migraines appear to serve no purpose. This debilitating condition that causes repeated, unfathomable suffering for millions of people around the world exists for no good reason which is an extraordinary thing. So what provokes this reaction? Why do some people get these regularly while others don't? And that will be the topic of the next video in this series. Remember, if you want to test your knowledge about this video, you can go to mymigrainemiracle.com forward slash masterclass and you'll find quizzes dedicated to each of the videos in this series.